I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico, an online Christian thought leader. <laughs> I'm just doing that from now on. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I like it. Uh, and it's true. Last week, we started a, a new theme on postmodernism and Christianity, but in light of the events in Bolivia, we're interrupting that theme to do a special episode on what's going on in that region. It's really important in moments like this for Christians and leftists to go out of our way to express our solidarity. And if you haven't heard, on Sunday, Eva Morales, the president of Bolivia, was forced to resign by the military. Uh, another word for that is a coup occurred in Bolivia. A lot has happened since then, and by this time, by the time that this episode airs, a lot more is going to happen, I'm sure. But to learn more for now, and we hope also to help our listeners figure out a way to engage the coup in Bolivia, we talked to Jim Hodgson of the United Church uh, this week. He works with partners in Latin America and the Caribbean, and he has been involved in the region for 30 years. Uh, we talked to him in the past about Venezuela, so we, uh, we appreciated him then, and we appreciate his perspective now. Yeah, Jim's great. He's a uh, he's a great source on Latin America for sure, and uh, he has a, he's got that good uh, that good Christian vibe too. So it's helpful. Well, uh, <laughs> even since doing this interview, there have been some significant changes. Uh, so, for example, Janine Inez Chavez, a politician in Bolivia, declared herself president while carrying a Bible into the palace. Uh, many members of the Bolivian Senate refused to vote to confirm her as president, but she assumed the office anyways. It's, uh, you know, weird when uh, all those people who are concerned about things like legal process and rule of law uh, line up behind someone subverting all those things. But there it is. Yeah. Uh, with all the news about the coup floating around, I think it's also important to recognize the gains the Morales government made in Bolivia. So not only is Morales the country's first indigenous leader which is really important for a lot of reasons, uh, but also social reforms under Morales really radically changed the country and moved it in a direction totally different from the direction that was being proposed by one of his predecessors, Carlos Mesa, who was also his opponent in the most recent presidential election. Uh, Mesa is his uh, kind of arch nemesis in some ways. Before Morales became president, Mesa was promoting an economy that was devoted to international capital, to international privatization of all kinds of things. Morales, though, and the movement towards socialism, which is the, the party and the movement that Morales comes out of, 
they opposed Mesa and demanded the nationalization of hydrocarbons. And it's a pretty dramatic and amazing story. Uh, if you ever want to feel kind of excited about like um, the possibility of grassroots socialism, you can read a lot more about that. And it led to Morales being elected in 2005 after Mesa resigned following all of this public pressure. So after that, uh, after Evo as president, um, the coming years marked a really drastic improvement for Bolivians. And, um, well, there's a lot that could be said about that, lots of stuff about um, literacy rates and so on. But uh, there's a good summary of this in The Guardian from 2014, um, and I'm just going to read it right here. According to a report by the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, Bolivia has grown much faster over the last eight years than any period over the last three and a half decades. The benefits of such growth have been felt by the Bolivian people under Morales. Poverty has declined by 25%, and extreme poverty has declined by 43%. Social spending has increased by more than 45%, and the minimum wage has increased by 87.7%. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the Economic Commission on Latin America and the Caribbean has praised Bolivia for being one of the few countries that has reduced inequality. So a lot going on there to think about. Yeah, uh, and we should keep thinking about it. We should remember all this history when we start hearing narratives about the coup. There's a, there are a lot of stories going around that try to tell a specific narrative about Morales as a person, um, about the Bolivian government, etc. Um, but it's important to kind of keep the long history in mind when we hear that as well. Uh, things are going to change rapidly in the coming weeks. Like we said earlier, um, they're going to change by the time this episode goes to air. Uh, in the meantime, we'll be following Jim's work, especially in trying to learn more about the situation. We think Christians and leftists have a duty to oppose imperialism and the attempt to roll back all these gains made by marginalized people. Uh, there's lots of ways to show solidarity in a time like this. If you live in a city, for example, like I do in Toronto, there's probably a rally going on this week, um, so you should go to that if you can. Uh, and if you can't, or if you don't live in a city, you might consider taking time out of your day to really like dig into the history and issues around these events and encourage other people to do the same thing. Uh, that might seem like kind of a small thing that you can do, but uh, it's definitely better than nothing, and it's also more than most people are going to do. Uh, if you spend any amount of time on social media, too, uh, you probably have noticed that there's all kinds of stories and counter stories already flying around. Uh, in the midst of these stories, practicing solidarity might be something as simple as urging folks who aren't politically aware to dig into these stories some more. Um, in, in any case, it's definitely not a time to be quiet or to offer liberal criticisms or say, you know, um, these are the, the laundry list of problems with Evo Morales or with his government or something like that. Uh, this is an opportunity for the left to express their wholesale rejection of imperialism. Uh, and we can save all those other criticisms for later or uh, amongst ourselves. Yeah, that's a good note. Um, well, Jim will have a lot more to say about all of this in a minute. But the thing that sticks out for us is his advice to view politics through the lens of the preferential option for the poor. And that means being anti-imperialists. So um, what you're about to hear is an interview that Dean did with Jim Hodgson. Uh, I'm not in this one, unfortunately. <laughs> um, it's no big deal. My son had a snow day at school, and I had to hang out with him today, and it was great, just the same. But I didn't get to talk to Jim Hodgson, which was kind of a bummer, but that's fine. We watched X-Men instead. Pretty good. So anyways, here's Jim and Dean, not the X-Men. <laughs> The 
This week on the Magnificast, we're joined again by Jim Hodgson, who works as the program coordinator for Latin America and the Caribbean at the United Church of Canada. Uh, Jim came on the show in the past, episode 98, um, feels like a long time ago, but it wasn't, in fact, that long ago, uh, to talk to us about Venezuela uh, during a, a kind of similar event. Um, and we're happy to have you back, Jim, to give us some insight on Bolivia. Could you introduce yourself a little bit, maybe, and just say something about the kind of work that you do and uh, why this is of interest to you? Sure. Uh, it's good to be back uh, back in touch and, and chatting again. Um, yeah, I work with the United Church of Canada, which is the largest Protestant church in Canada, uh, made up uh, of Methodists, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists who came together about 90 years ago. Um, so the church has a pretty strong social justice focus um, and you know, pretty good on inclusion and, and um, indigenous rights. And, and we um, have been working with partners in Latin America uh, since the 1960s. Before that, the focus was more Asia and Africa. And I guess in Latin America, um, you know, getting involved in the 60s meant we were kind of contemporaneous with the evolution of liberation theology and the church of the poor and, and such movements. Um, and that's kind of been a large part of my, my focus. And my, my own background is Roman Catholic. Um, and uh, in Canada, I think we've had a good experience most of the time of uh, ecumenical collaboration um, uh, among the the, the, the Roman Catholic Church and the major Protestant churches anyway. Um, and that's kind of what makes it possible for the United Church to hire somebody like me to do this kind of work, that, that shared history. So, yeah, and I guess maybe just one other thing to add by way of introduction. I'm, I'm in, talking to you today from San Jose, Costa Rica. Um, I'm near the end of a three-week journey visiting partners in um, Colombia, Nicaragua, and uh, and now Costa Rica just got here today. Uh, and in um, and I think maybe some of the experiences in Nicaragua may shape uh, some of what I have to say about Bolivia, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, well, we welcome for sure those kinds of connections and, and insights. Um, we're grateful to be able to hear from you in this context. Um, so just to maybe get the basic themes on the table here, uh, news broke this past week on Sunday the 10th about um, events in Bolivia that, uh, you know, we, I guess, think is a coup, <laughs> Matt and yeah. I. Um, media outlets have been reticent to call it that, uh, preferring different kinds of, of ways of um, talking about the lead up to these kinds of things. Um, but could you give us maybe a, a short take or a, a recap on this event or how you kind of have seen these events play out as you've been in Latin America yourself? Mm. Uh, it's a big question, and uh, it is. Uh, it is. <laughs> so, um, I guess the the, the immediate. Uh, I'll start with the immediate, and then maybe work backwards. And and so the immediate things that that happened were um, uh, a general election uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the count came in slowly. Um, uh, Evo Morales, the president, the indigenous president of uh, Bolivia, um, running for his third term, um, was. Uh, um, you know, kind of close to reaching a 45% uh, threshold um, under which he wouldn't have to uh, do a runoff election against his closest competitor if, he, if the closest competitor was further than 20 points back. And uh, so some people thought there would be a, a runoff, uh, but, but uh, within hours, you know, as the votes came in from the rural areas, um, it became clear he was up to about 47%. Now, this is what is disputed by 
um, by by some, you know, they, they think there's fraud and so on. And uh, uh, Evo Morales tried to be quite transparent, I think, and invited the Organization of American States to come in and um, sort of review, do an audit of the count. And, uh, and the OAS issued a very preliminary report saying, well, there's some problems here. Um, that seemed to be uh, kind of a tipping point. And um, push came to shove. Uh, there were demonstrations. Um, and, uh, and then an army general on uh, Sunday morning uh, said, um, we suggest you leave. And Evo responded, well, for the good of the Bolivian people and to avoid violence, I will leave. And so he... Um, this is where, you know, people sometimes say, oh, it's not a coup. He, he quit. <laughs> but when the general says, we suggest you leave, um, it kind of sounds like a threat. So that that's where, you know, I kind of come down on the side of it, it's a coup. Um, and and then, the you know, jumping ahead a bit, uh, now, now the test is uh, what kind of interim government emerges. Um, so far, they seem to be having trouble putting something together. It's Tuesday now. Um, and uh, and then how soon will there be new elections? And then under new elections, can the, the can Morales himself participate? Can his party, the MAS, the Movement Towards Socialism, can they participate? So that, that's kind of like the the recent, um, the most recent set of events. Uh, I, I guess, yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, and there's background, deeper background I can go into about ecological issues and indigenous issues and all that stuff. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that for sure. Um, but that helps us get kind of the immediate backdrop um, on the table here. Uh, and we should note too that Eva Morales has gone to Mexico on asylum now. Um, I just read that uh, recently too. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, so as we think about these kinds of things, you've suggested, and I think this is really helpful, uh, that an important framework for looking at politics in Latin America and these events in particular in Bolivia is the preferential option for the poor, uh, a concept that comes from liberation theology. Um, what do you think that that means, and why is that a helpful way to contextualize what's going on? I, I think um, for, for many of us uh, who've worked in Latin America, the option for the poor, the, the preferential option for the poor is kind of a way of of uh, looking at, at issues, as you say. Um, so, uh, you know, who benefits, uh, who loses uh, while we're waiting for the the what we all hope for, you know, a perfect democracy or, uh, you know, a social uh, some sort of 21st century socialism with the human face and social justice and voices for all or a reshaping of power, whatever, um, seems to me wise not to make things worse uh, for the people for whom or among whom or with whom you have sided and who your allies are. So um, what do I mean by that? I, I think um, in these uh, skirmishes, I, I guess, of the left in power, um, uh, Cuba, Venezuela, uh, Bolivia, Nicaragua. Um, that yes, there are real issues in each of those situations that, that I think everybody is open to talking about. Um, but when you hitch your environmental wagon or your indigenous rights wagon to the um, to U.S.-led imperialism or 
the Chamber of Commerce or mining companies or what have you, um, you're going to run into trouble. So I just come from Nicaragua to Costa Rica, and, and I think that what, what happened in Nicaragua um, may help us understand a bit of what happened in Venezuela. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, so in Nicaragua, you, in uh, 2018, um, students began protesting um, really over something a little odd for students to be protesting the um, the, the changing of, of pension arrangements, you know, when you're when I was 18 or 20, I wasn't quite sure <laughs> what a pension was, but I <laughs> have any assurance that it would ever benefit from one. But uh, anyway, uh, so and, and then the, uh, it kind of ended up in this alliance, the students together with the Chamber of Commerce, with the feminist, some of the feminist organizations, some of the LGBT organizations, some farmers groups. Um, and, and it was a. a, a I, I think a very uh, strange kind of alliance, um, and I. So the the uprising happened in April, uh, went on for several months. Uh, there was uh, violence on both sides. I'm convinced uh, from the government and from the opposition, um, and uh, I went myself in August last year twice to to kind of get a sense of this. And in one of the visits. We had a meeting with the, what was called the Civic Alliance. So it was this range of groups uh, that included academics, the, the Business Council, uh, or Chamber of Commerce, as I'm calling it, um, uh, students, women, and so on. Um, and what what made me sad was that the Civic Alliance was um, absolutely unwilling to say with any clarity, but what they hoped for. I mean, they wanted uh, the, the president, Daniel Ortega, and his wife, uh, Rosario Murillo gone, but beyond that they had no platform. Um, so what will you do with public health care? What will you do with public education? Well, they wouldn't say. They would say, well, that's for the parties to sort out. And um, and uh, and to me that's not good enough. Uh, if you're going to uh, denounce what is, then surely you have to pronounce what you are for. And that, that they wouldn't even say that they were for the poor, for justice for the poor, for healthcare, for uh, public education, uh, those minimal things um, may be extremely suspicious of them. Um, so you look at what's going on in Bolivia, and, and of course, I, I, I want to appreciate the, the, the distant dissident voices uh, for the environmental movement, some of the indigenous folk. Um, uh, that, that did have legitimate claims, but I felt in my times visiting Bolivia that there was space for talking those through. Um, there was space for debate. Uh, so, um, so my last visit was in 2015. One of the things I did then was uh, visit a visit an environmental organization working in southern Bolivia, um, and together we went to visit a tin mine, uh, the Huanuni mine. And it was fascinating because there was no um, sort of military or police or security control. We could go in, we could walk around, we could take pictures, we could see uh, the, the water from the tailings pond dumping into the rivers that go into a lake, um, absolutely filthy. Um, we could talk about it. The environmental organization was publicly denouncing it and hoping for change. Um, and they felt then that they could work within the system to produce the kind of change that they wanted. Now, that was uh, 
four years ago, so I'm not quite sure what's happened with that particular mine since then. I, I will ask one of these days. Um, there was another incident back in 2011 where uh, the government wanted to build uh, a highway through um, through a, a, an ecological reserve that was uh, indigenous controlled and the indigenous people in the zone, this is called the Tipnis uh, Park, T-I-P-N-I-S, if you want to look it up. So Tipnis was, was kind of one of those uh, serious conflicts that challenged the uh, government of uh, Evo Morales. But again, I felt like yeah, that's happening, and there were protests, and and uh, but there there was, a, a, there were ways of of talking things through. So you jump ahead to the last little while. Um, maybe another critique that 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 has some merit is that um, the Evo Morales government, like the Ortega government in um, in Nicaragua, has just outlived its welcome. Um, uh, I remember in Mexico when I lived there, you know, the the value of the what's affirmed over and over um, of no re-election. Uh, like uh, in the old pre-system, the, the the party that ruled Mexico for 70 years, uh, the only kind of democracy that people had was the change of leaders every six years, and, and there was some value to that. I felt, and and you know, Evo this time was running for a third term. There had been a referendum. Um, 2016 about whether there should be uh, term limits or, or not, and um, and Evo actually lost the referendum and then ignored the result, uh, so it was running again despite uh, uh, despite that referendum result. So I mean, there, so there are reasons to complain. Uh, uh, there are reasons to question um, the, the the quality of democracy. You know, when the president ignores the referendum results. But I don't think that those reasons are sufficient and in, in the, sufficient to overthrow the government uh, to, to launch a coup, uh, especially because the, the historical record in Bolivia and elsewhere shows that the people who get power after such events tend, tend to be the worst, uh, the worst enemies of the poor, of the ec ecological defenders, uh, of the indigenous people. You, you get this um, in, in the Bolivian context, at least, this uh, sort of white elite from uh, Santa Cruz over and against the indigenous people who were pushed up into the mountains. Um, so, and you can see signs of that, you know, the, the way that the, um, yeah, the, some of the, the, the white elite opponents of Evo Morales entered the, the National Palace with the Bible, the way others uh, uh, have burned the, the indigenous flag. Uh, in, in public, uh, those are those those things are deplorable. Um, but my my fear is that um, that instead of getting a government that's more responsive to indigenous people or environmental concerns or the concerns of women, we're going to get something that's much much worse. Tom, maybe yeah. Uh, well, could you tell us something a little bit more about some of these um, maybe uh, differences in Bolivian society uh, and how that relates to looking at these things with the preferential option for the poor? Um, you know, you just mentioned this um, contrast between the white elite and indigenous people who are uh, in the mountains and this sort of thing. Um, how do sort of race and class uh, come together maybe in the movement towards socialism? Uh, and how it is trying to, to give a voice to these groups. And how do those two things come together or not come together in the opposition toward that thing? Do you have any sense of on the ground how these two groups kind of shake out? Yeah, yeah it's, um, 
uh, again, being far away from Bolivia right now, uh, so I'm watching some of the same same things you may be. Uh, also reading media from from uh, from the area in in Spanish. Maybe that's maybe that would be a difference. Um, so uh, if you look back at Bolivian history, um, there's always it's always been a um, a struggle between uh, a wealthy minority, um, which is lighter skinned, and the much larger indigenous or sometimes mestizo peasant um, uh, population. Um, and uh, in the towards the end of the 90s, the indigenous people began to show the kind of power that they had. And there's a whole succession of governments um, that lasted, you know, a year, a few months, what have you, um, uh, because the indigenous people simply would not accept uh, those people in power anymore. And so finally, we got to around 2006 and Evo Morales miraculously won the election. Um, and uh, and then things changed, you know, there was a stable government. Um, uh, there was a, a government that um, tried to use the resources of the nation for the benefit of everyone and not just the elite, not just themselves. Um, and I think for the most part did a, a very good job. Um, there's all kinds of social indicators, literacy, uh, income distribution um, that, that, that show uh, the impact that a government that uh, an imperfect government, uh, the, the impact that they could make in improving the lives of, of most people uh, over um, 13 years, uh, I guess. And um, so what's happening now, uh, my fear, of course, is that, that uh, some of that will be done or, or turned back. I mean, and you look at uh, Brazil um, next door, um, where without an election, um, the opposition got power by with uh, demonstrably false accusations made against the previous um, Labour Party pres uh, president, uh, Dilma Rousseff, um, and her predecessor, uh, Lula da Silva. Uh, so the right got power without an election and then um, set out to undermine uh, undercut, overturn every bit of socially progressive legislation that had been passed in the previous decade. Um, so, so that's, so that's the, you know, the, the, the I, I think it's important to remember that um, Evo Morales is the first uh, indigenous president of any country in South America, only the second in all of Latin America, the, the first being Benito Juarez in Mexico in the mid 19th century, um, and, and um, this uh, this experiment should not have ended this way. Um, yeah, and maybe just just one other thought. I mean, Lula da Silva, uh, the former president of Brazil, just got out of jail oh, less than a week ago. My goodness, there's it, been a lot of events. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So Lula got out of jail. Um, the, the Supreme Court finally got the case and finally said, no, there's no reason to on these on these relatively trivial charges to be holding him in jail, for heaven's sake. So they, they released him. Um, and 
so what he he said um, yesterday in the, the wake of the coup, coup is that he just feels sad that that in Latin America we still have an economic elite that does not know how to live with democracy or with social inclusion um, and uh, social inclusion of the most impoverished people. Um, and I think that I think that's the key. So you know, social. He didn't even say it as strongly as I would. If he said that the elite can't live with social inclusion of the most impoverished people, they certainly can't live with the poor people in power. And I think that's a lesson that, that, that I've been learning and relearning over and over in the 35 years that I spent in uh, Latin America. It goes back to the, um, the struggles in the 80s in Central America, the, the Sandinista Revolution, and everything that the United States did then with the Contras and everything else to subvert the Sandinista government then and then the, the resources that they invested in defeating the, um, the guerrilla movements in um, El Salvador and Guatemala. Um, so we've got peace, supposedly, in Central America, peace at the point of a gun, a U.S. gun. Um, but look where the refugees are coming from, the, where the, the, the flow of migrants to the U.S. border, where are they coming from? Those countries that the United States refused to allow change to occur in. Um, and, and that, that, that this, you know, what in our option for the poor, standing with the poor in trying to perceive things from the perspective of the, the poor. The poor now, I think, broadly understood, not just people who are poor economically, but also impoverished uh, because of their lack of access to power. So women, LGBT people, um, indigenous people, uh, Afro-Hondurans, uh, among others, uh, the indigenous Bolivia. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you uh, when we had you back on um, earlier uh, to talk about Venezuela, you were you were talking about this too, and I thought that was such a good point um, to sort of drive home that uh, when uh, the previously excluded people in a social order get power, uh, that that can be seen as a dangerous thing. Uh, this might seem like sort of an obvious question, but I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Uh, you know, in the early uh, 21st century, and then at the, the tail end of the 20th century, as you were saying, in Nicaragua, there were a number of uh, sort of new progressive and uh, somewhat socialist uh, in different ways governments that popped up uh, kind of within just a few decades all over, it seemed. Um, so some people refer to that as the pink tide. Uh, there are other, other names or analytics. Um, and I, I guess we're curious to hear... Uh, you know, why do you think that wealthy nations outside of Latin America uh, don't want that to happen or that they're trying to sort of uh, support opposition to it within these countries? Uh, what is so threatening um, about, you know, redistributing uh, income or, or giving indigenous people uh, a place in authority or something like that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's an excellent question. And I think it, it's part of, um, you know, you can ask the same question in, in, in the United States or Canada about, uh about racism, uh, why is there such persistent uh, refusal to, uh, um, well, in the U.S. context, uh, extending voting rights to everyone uh, <laughs> without uh, without barriers, um, like the identification or restricting access to voting booths mm -hmm. and all that stuff? Well, it's racism. Uh, well, why is there racism? It's just it's just stupid. Um, but but some people evidently feel that that. The power that they have um, has to be held on to uh, at all costs. Uh, on a 
yeah, a bigger scale, uh, the corporations uh, want access to resources in Bolivia, in Venezuela too. Um, uh, uh, th th those would be uh, those would be the two biggest factors, I think, in the uh, external opposition to the governments of Bolivia and um, uh, Venezuela. So what, what, and what also, and it has to be admitted, uh, the, the Venezuelan government and the Bolivian government didn't make a lot of progress uh, breaking away from the dependence on resource extraction. Um, and uh, that's something I was looking for and hoped for. And uh, some other people, like there's a... Um, a writer whose name is Pablo Salon, Salon uh, Bolivian, um, who was part of the government for a time. That, that was what he hoped for, too, and it didn't happen, so he eventually left the government and became one of those external critics. But, uh, but at the same time, my goodness, uh, Bolivia, when, when Morales came in, there were these treaty obligations, export obligations uh, that, that the country had to Argentina and Brazil. It had to export certain quantities of, of natural gas to Argentina or Brazil or they'd be or they'd be in trouble. And that was part of the, the backdrop to that uh, tipness call conflict that I mentioned before. What was um, so unless you break the break the deals or negotiate a new deal, then you, you're kind of uh, stuck in this dependence role and you don't have a whole lot of resources to play with in, in experimenting with alternatives. Um, yeah, I think something people always forget is the, the, the shape of the Latin American economies, um, the shape of the economies in, in the Americas. And a couple of years ago, I heard somebody say um, that 80% uh, of the economic activity in the Americas takes place in Canada and the United States, and the other 20% goes on from Mexico to Argentina and Chile. Um, so... You know, you, 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 we're not talking about level playing fields at all when we talk about economic justice or redistribution or alternatives to resource extraction. Um, that, that a whole lot of investment is required in, in Bolivia or Venezuela or Mexico to uh, change the economic dependence on oil, gas, and minerals. Um, I think I've probably gone off topic here from, from where you're. <laughs> yeah no that's good uh that's great i mean i i'd hope to to ask you a bit more about um about that piece of the story too so happy to yeah. have that um yeah so you know I'm, I'm curious too about your own work uh for the united church and as somebody developing these relationships in latin america and what it's like to be observing these kinds of events like what happened in venezuela what's going on in bolivia now um as you're talking with people in in other countries uh, so have you sensed any kind of reaction, for instance, to what's happening in Bolivia? Do your partners seem affected by it? Um, do they have, you know, maybe their own concerns that they're uh, worried about and you're trying to, to put all these things together? Um, how does that work in your own sort of day-to-day -day, uh, work, building these relationships so that you can have an idea of, um, you know, what the poor are saying? Yeah, it's, a, it's always fascinating uh, to, to, to be kind of in... Well, in a context, in my case, the Nicaraguan one, the past few days, and then something else happened somewhere else. Um, and I think um, uh, so. My, my sense of people in Bolivia is that they are kind of whole, crossing their fingers and hoping for the best. That uh, um, and the indigenous people have been marching uh, yesterday and today. Um, you know, I think that they will be 
pretty clear about what they'll accept and what they won't accept. Um, uh, and I think that has also made it difficult, and this is a good thing, made it difficult for the opposition to pull together a, a government. Um, the, so, so we'll see how we'll see how that goes outside. I mean, it's kind of another knock uh, on um, on those possibilities for change that I was talking about before. Uh, you know, uh, oh, if you go back, you know, like in the 1959, the Cuban Revolution, um, guerrilla wars through the 60s and 70s. Uh, by the end of the 80s, uh, it was pretty clear that um, that the use of uh, civil war violence or guerrilla war uh, was not kind of broadly acceptable anymore to bring about change. Um, so, you know, despite the the Allende exper experiment in Chile in 1970 through 73, people went, which he was elected through a democratic election and then overthrown by a military coup. Um, by the through the 80s and, and since then, people have used uh, elections to try to hold power. So, you know, you have the the poor people working in systems that were invented by the rich to keep themselves in power. And, um, you know, so Hugo Chavez at the end of 1988 won power in Venezuela. Uh, Lula after Lula da Silva in Brazil after three tries, uh, three election tries, he finally won power and I think it was 2001. Um, and that kind of set the, the pink wave, the pink tide, as you say, um, in motion, and then uh, suddenly uh, people tried um, the same kinds of things in other places. And, and really, what what was um, amazing in that period uh, for me um, was seeing how people were gathering in spaces like the World Social Forum or the Americas Social Forum. So first in Porto Alegre in Brazil, but then in other places, and kind of hammering out policy alternatives. Um, but we don't want privatize, privatization of water, but what do we want? Uh, uh, we don't want privatization of education, but what do we want? What, what do we want in terms of health care and so on? What, what do we want for uh, environmental change? Um, and, uh, and, and, and those became, you know, the smart politicians paid heed and, and ran on the, those campaign platforms um, and won. Um, the pink tide ebbed uh, so that you know, uh, the past five years or so, suddenly uh, the other side has the upper hand. The, these more U.S.-friendly governments, um, uh, you know, Colombia never did change, but uh, so and Peru never really changed either. But uh, then Colombia, Peru, um, Argentina went to the right. Uh, there was this sort of democratic or judicial coup in Brazil that turned it to the right. Now you've got this. Um, well, I guess two things fairly close in time. Argentina has returned to power a, a more progressive branch of the um, Peronist party, uh, and, uh, the, the, and and that is hopeful. Um, they have denounced the coup. Uh, Mexico, just over a year ago, elected a progressive president. Uh, that, that was good news. Um, uh, but now... Bolivia falls, and, uh, and it, it feels like a setback. It is a setback for indigenous people, um, uh, and uh, we hope, and the partners that I work with hope that it's a temporary setback, that, that things can be recovered, and that 
that new ideas will emerge and that other alternatives will be will still be proposing alternatives into the future. And I think that's where the the, the United Church partners um, have largely um, uh, called the event a coup um, and regretted it um, and uh, call for protection at this time of human rights of people who um, whose rights may not be respected by whoever wins this struggle. Um, the indigenous people, the poor people, the women, um, the farmers. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, to my mind, you, 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 you're gambling a whole lot when you throw your environmental movement on the side of the business leaders and the white elite in Bolivia. You put everything at risk. You put all of the past... Uh, 15 years of, of advances in jeopardy. And I think that before you do that kind of thing, you should think carefully about what the consequences of your opposition to a fairly good government are. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that really helps to contextualize what's at stake here. Um, you know, you, you work with these partners in Latin America on behalf of the United Church uh, in Canada. What do you think is at stake for, for Christians here in Canada or in the U.S. Uh, or elsewhere um, you know, how, how can Christians maybe find ways to express solidarity or, or do something that uh, shows, you know, that um, these partners that you're working with, for instance, aren't alone or um, that there are people in these other countries that have uh, their governments have uh, wealthy interests in, in extractives in places like Bolivia. Uh, not all the people, you know, are, are behind that. Um, what can Christians do maybe to, to express that solidarity? I think I think a lot of people uh, support their churches and their churches' actions um, uh, against poverty, for the rights of migrants, and so on. Those those things are uh, important and and strong and growing. Uh, um, I I, th I think um, I, I think having um, a clearer political analysis uh, helps like I, I it's always seemed to me that um, there's a lot of goodwill the charity impulse is, is strong amongst uh, Christians in North America um, but I think it has to go beyond that um, it even has to go beyond kind of a, a development um, model uh, it's, it's not just about oh these people are suffering from underdevelopment therefore they must have development um, Development is this complex thing that is, uh, you know, kind of popular both with capitalists and with Marxists. You, you know, build hydroelectric dams and think you've got development. Um, but I think what the Bolivian experience was trying to say to us was you know, we want education and we want health care and we want uh, participation. Um, and uh, and the and, uh, and the only way we can afford to pay for those things is is to continue in this uh, resource dependency mode. Um, I, so I say I think we need to develop our political lens. So in the United Church a few years ago, almost a, a decade ago now, we began trying to work with people around the concept of empire, um, not quite saying imperialism, but certainly around empire. Like who has power? How is power used? What kinds of power are we talking about? Economic power, political power. And power, I think we were learning, is always oppressive, colonial, patriarchal. How do we name that and um, 
and see who benefits and who's lo- who loses and and what can be done to to change that. Um, so you know, and, and I, I must say, it's an uphill struggle for for me working in the United Church. I, I feel like uh, when I say the kinds of things I'm saying to you today, I you know I, I um, sometimes offend people who um, would rather um, I only talk about you know projects or development in a narrow sense or or charity. Um, but you know, I don't. I, I think that the the times demand of us, um, the gospel demands of us uh, a stronger commitment. Um, so that you know, and so what I see hopeful in the the, the the so-called pink wave is like people trying to use politics for what politics should be used for, the common good, um, working out issues in public ways, uh, debating issues, um, um, trying to th- reimagine power so that it's not um, used over and against other people, but rather used to serve the people who are most marginalized. I love the Zapatista phrase uh, from, from Chiapas in Mexico, you know, mandar obedeciendo, uh, to rule by obedience to the people. Um, you know, that puts a pretty heavy responsibility on politicians to be listening to the people um, so that they're always obeying the people. But it also puts a, 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 a weight on people to be educated about the issues that they're wrestling with. Um, you know, like you, you can't go into, uh, as people in Ontario did uh, a year ago, uh, uh, or people in the United States did oh, in 2016, um, sort of thinking by throwing out the old gang, you'll get something better. You don't. You, you in both cases, in, in the province of Ontario and Canada, and then the United States, by throwing out the old gang, you got something much worse. And that that has a an impact on um, on the people. You know, hopefully, we care about the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I want to ask you a bit more, too, about you have a background working with um, Christians uh, who had a a history of international solidarity movements, um, of opposing imperialism, of trying to study and do this sort of political education work that you're talking about now. Uh, As younger Christians, uh, Matt and I both trying to find our way in in all of that, it can be difficult to find connections and to find these kinds of, of groups, and much of what we find is, you know, from the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, do you have any advice, given your own participation in those kinds of movements? You know, what what is sort of useful in building those kind of solidarity links? What kind of power can Christians leverage uh, on behalf of uh, the poor in their own countries and people around the world? I, I think I, 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 there's kind of two levels of, of answering that. I, I, th- I think... Um, one of the things that happened in the uh, be- because of the emergence of liberation theology and these progressive social movements and the, the 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 concept of the church of the poor and so on in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was that it, it uh, resulted in a backlash. Um, so the Pope John Paul and then um, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict, um, blasted back. Um, and I, I think that some people who had been uh, part of those uh, faith-based efforts for change and saw potential in working through church spaces, um, 
gave up and left or put their energy into other other sort of civil society kinds of movements. And so, um, you know, I look around at the people I was working with in the 80s and uh, and who's around me still. Yeah, there's some, uh, but 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 others have, have gone on to other things. Um, sometimes people maybe found a, found a different church to do their work in, you know, in, in my case, yeah, Roman Catholic, my, that's my spirituality, my, my kind of preferred whatever worship style anyway. Uh, but the, the United Church uh, has become home to a lot of uh, uh, jaded Roman Catholics um, and, and people from other denominations who, who kind of got tired of, of how slow things were, were moving. Um, so anyway, so like I still draw hope and uh, light from the from from elders, people who've been in the move, these movements for a lot longer than me. Um, there aren't as many around as there used to be. Um, but like in, in Toronto, I, I go to a Jesuit parish um, and I listen to those guys because they <laughs> they've been doing this for 40, 50 years and they're they're pretty strong in what they believe. Um, they're, they're, they're some of the religious communities that, um, also, uh, and then and then I think at the same time, you know, sort of to carry those ideas or that spirituality of struggle, that spirituality of justice into work in other circles. So the, um, the ecological movement, uh, indigenous rights circles, um, uh, solidarity movements, uh, you know, and, and I think people like I always find it interesting. I, you know, you can trace this right back into the. 30s and 40s when the United Church and the Canadian Labour Congress were like the, the only two bodies in the country that opposed the, um, the removal of the Japanese Canadians from the coast. You know, So sometimes um, the unions understand even yet the, the, the progressive Christian social justice impulse uh, better than some of the, the more secular organizations. So, you know, like, like hanging out with the union people, like it helps me build my, my sense of faith and solidarity and, uh, um, and, and hang in there for, for the next round. Yeah. I mean, that's great advice. Uh, <laughs> something that we certainly appreciate here at the Magnificast. Um, well, I guess as we kind of come to the, the top of our, um, our conversation, you know, the, all these events in Bolivia are extremely fresh. We're recording this on Tuesday. Usually our episodes go up on Friday. So I'm sure, you know, by the time we get there, all kinds of other things will have happened. Um, for people who are trying to observe these things, trying to have uh, a lens through which to look at it, like you said, with a preferential option for the poor, uh, what kinds of questions would you be asking about, you know, news reports that you see come by or headlines or um, sources? And maybe how would you suggest, you know, if somebody really wants to try to get their hands on, um, you know, how, how to really express solidarity in a situation like this, what kinds of materials would be useful in that sort of process? Do you have any ideas about that? Yeah, um, uh, there's kind of general things I, I guess uh, you know read read media critically uh, you know the the Canadian media aren't using the word coup um, that says something um, there's some discussion right now about whether or to to what extent this coup is driven by the transnationals 
drive to get um, access to Bolivia's lithium resources, you know, the, the stuff that goes into cell phone batteries and electric cars. Um, so, you know, what, are, what, what role do those sort of big economic issues and the big power economic power issues have in all of this? A good source for me is um, an organization in the United States, uh, um, CEPR, Ah, and I've forgotten what the first C is, but it's about economic policy and research. Um, and uh, Mark Weisbrot is the, the genius there. Um, he, he just put out a, a good, really good piece on Friday about um, the, 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 what's at play in Bolivia. Um, and I find Mark um, always insightful uh, um, and usually spot on. Um, and I think... You know, and, and I think those of us who've kind of said, well, yeah, I think it's a coup and I think it's illegitimate and I, and I really um, wish that uh, Evo had been allowed to claim victory and, and continue, continue in power. At the same time, I think um, there's an occasion for us all to, to listen a bit to debates on the left um, and hear the voices of those who, who are asking questions about how does the left renew itself? You know, how do you over time avoid situations where um, somebody who was a good leader in a particular moment is still there uh, 15 years or 30 years later um, and, and what can be done to sort of renew generational leadership, um, avoid holding on too long, uh, avoid personalizing issues. Um, you know, we shouldn't be electing, it's true, we shouldn't be electing uh, leaders for life, you know, power is to serve and so um, so, ha, ha. so like, don't dismiss the, the, the voices that, you know, may not have agreed with in their strategic choice for the, for opting for the Chamber of Commerce in this instance, but, but at the same time had some, some good questions to ask. So, you know, like, take this, take the question seriously, even while you um, wish that this had gone some other way. And then I think we also have to really watch in the days ahead what does happen with, with human rights, what does happen to the people who, who, who were um, solid supporters of Evo Morales. Um, will their lives um, be endangered because of that? What happens to the indigenous people more broadly? Yeah, we'll definitely be on the lookout for that. Uh, as a, a final question to put it to you, you've, you've already suggested some things about this and, and circled around it and, and talked about it a bit too. Uh, but just putting it simply, I suppose, um, what's the Christian responsibility in a political moment like this? Uh, what are Christians supposed to do or called to do? And what do you wish that you saw more of them doing? You know, you're fighting these uphill battles sometimes in the United Church. Um, what do you hope that the, that, that church, the rest of us who, who call ourselves Christians, uh, would do in a moment like this? Well, I guess uh, st stand with the most vulnerable, stand with the poor. Um, I think, uh, again, people will choose their, their fights. And I'm, I'm, uh, I, I rejoice in that so many people are, are uh, noticing what's going on on the, the, the U.S.-Mexico border and um, denouncing it and uh, doing what they can to... Um, to shed light on the, the migrant experience and the, the refugee situations. Um, you know, there's, there've been kind of, uh, consistent visits of solidarity, consistent call outs, uh, about what's going on. And, uh, um, 
and I, and I think that over time is changing people. But on these other kinds of issues, the political issues further away, um, you know, uh, do some reading, get, uh, ask some questions, you know, write to me if you want, um, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> or phone me. And uh, it's um, I, so what I what I hope people would do is stand with the poor, stand with the people who are. Um, most abused and most subject to abuse. Um, and, you know, uh, it's like an option for the poor isn't sort of saying, um, I will stand with the poor no matter what, you know, uh, like a blind ideological position. It's it's sort of saying, well, you know, like, uh, yeah, I will read and listen and hear. And um, when in doubt, stand with the poor, stand with the people who are marginalized, stand with the people who benefit the least. Uh, denounce those who benefit the most. Um, um, try to encourage dialogue and try to encourage mutual understanding. Um, try to hear from each other, but but know that the uh, that the you know we've got to keep on pressing pressing power so the power will change so that it does um, serve the people rather than the other way around. That's great. Uh, I can also attest that if you do uh, write to Jim Hodgson, he will write you back. Uh, so <laughs> grateful for that. Um, Jim, we're so thankful for all the work that you're doing. Uh, thankful, too, to be able to have you on this on this episode of the podcast and get a little uh, insight from you. And we wish you all the best as you wrap up uh, these visits um, in, in Costa Rica now and look forward to hearing, too, what, what happens with all of that uh, once you've processed it and uh, come back. Thanks, Dean. I love what you do and I love the Magnificast. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard and you know you did, um, then you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. We have a Facebook group, uh, the Magnificast Basement. A few people have joined it this week. What's up, you basement people? Um, yeah, cool. The intro music is from Amari Armstrong. The outro music is, as always, by The Illogical Spoon. So we'll see you next week. I want to get up at church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early.